0: chance, Andy. Have a quick look. Just check. Uh,
1: oh. Oh, shit, shit.
0: I've just muted, Andy, because we don't want to hear the echoing. Am I back? You're back now. Did you have it open in two windows?
1: Two windows, yes. Yeah, that's what happens. The first first link didn't work or something.
0: Yeah, that's what happens when you have it open in two windows. You get it stereophonic. (laughs) We went into some sort of like 1970s disco, (laughs) (laughs) which wasn't all that pleasant. No. I don't think it was pleasant in 1970, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) My memories of discos, I probably was a little young to be going to a disco in 1970. A small job. But, um, you know, slightly later in the 80s when Adam Ant was on the scene, there was definitely a bit of that vibe going on. Um, so, welcome <laughs> now <laughs> to Andy Hurst, uh, who is an arts conservator. And we're going to ask Andy a little bit about that. But we're just going to do a little bit of thank you and gratitude because this is our one year anniversary of going live incredible. And I was just saying to Andy, you know, everything you start, you start with no audience. So when we started a year ago today, because it's my mum's birthday, I remember it well. Fortunately, otherwise she'll be a very bad daughter, wouldn't I? Um, and it was the first day of uh, lockdown. Um, the first day that, you know, we knew this thing. What, what is this thing called lockdown? We were just coming to terms with it. We decided we would go live and we picked this particular platform to go live on this platform called crowdcast and we literally had no audience at all we had no one we had you know we sent out an email to our to our members and said well you know do you want to come and have a chat and i think edith and fran um joined us that day and nadine and then after a couple of weeks we got a few more people and it became a thing and who could tell like i think we've now done 50 or 60 talk, live talks with different really interesting people. And we've done obviously one whole month in September of lives from artist studios every day. That was insane, but incredibly pleasurable and fun. And we we're just about to, this is our last live broadcast on Crowdcast of Pure Talks for Series 3. So, and is our last talk on series three i told him that is a very good place to be (laughs) and then we have a talk tomorrow but that's not on crowdcast with rob moore at three o'clock that'll be recorded and live streamed onto facebook and then in april so the 31st of march going right through april we're going to do the mad everyday thing again interviewing artists every day and it's going to be hilarious fun we enjoyed it so much the first time we decided to do it again I might even have a T-shirt <laughs> made in honor of that. So yeah, well done everyone for um, showing up and being part of this and and seeing the journey of how you take something from nothing to something. You know, we had no audience. Now most of our talks are um, seen after a few weeks by about—I'm not going to say this out loud. Mm-hmm. Don't let Andy hear. About thirty thousand people. Mm-hmm. Don't. Andy didn't hear them. Hear and that. No, don't hear that. And we also um, they're also available to download on Apple um, Podcasts and Spotify. And we get quite a big audience there. And in fact, I got a call from a music producer this morning who um, works with some quite major names in the music industry. And um, he downloaded our podcast, love what we do and wants to um, collaborate with us and work with us. So that's super cool. And um, and we are happy to work with anyone within the arts industry. We have our lovely Tanya, who's my virtual PA and your members liaison, and she's a singer and she often does um, live singing on our um, private private views and things. So yeah, it's been a ama- it's been an amazing journey, and I just wanted to say thank you to everybody for being part of that and bringing their energy to it. You've been amazing. So without further ado. Welcome, Andy Hurst. How are you?
1: I'm great today. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. And I didn't realize I was the privileged last guest (laughs) in the series or whatever.
0: You are privileged last guest in series three. I think that's a really lovely place to be, like really wrapping it up. And the next series, series four, won't be coming out until probably September, October. So we'll be taking a bit of a break. We'll do the art 360 and then we'll take a bit of a break and uh, refresh and see what the audience want, and then we'll set up another series of talks for whatever it is our audience want to hear about. But they really want to hear from you today, Andy, and all about art conservation, because I think this is a subject that's important to you if you own a piece of artwork. Um, I think it's a subject um, important to you if you buy artwork, and it's really important if you make artwork, because at the front end, you need to understand what could go wrong Um, in order to mitigate that risk as much as possible for your future collectors. And I know we see a lot of issues with storage, especially of works on paper and foxing and such like from historically. So, yeah, Andy, first of all, set the scene. What's your story? Tell us how you got into this, you know, bring us on the journey with you a little bit, and then we'll go into some specific questions.
1: Okay, so I've been... A paintings conservator for over 30 years now. I suppose you might say that I um, started out being interested in art. I went to art college. I did a fine art degree and a foundation course and all that. I studied painting more than anything else. And um, then I left college and I thought, what am I going to do? Because a fine art degree isn't necessarily much of a passport to anywhere, really, uh, unless you are careful how you use it. So I got a job in London. I worked in a shop in Covent Garden. It was long hours, not very good money. And I thought, I've got to get out of this. So I managed to get myself a couple of jobs with um, some restorers studios. And I did that for a while. And then I went and did a master's degree in conservation, which is what you generally, that's more or less the standard thing that you need to do this uh, job uh, properly, because it does involve um certain amount of history and science and so on Mm, um so that's how i ended up doing what i did what i do and i have worked for a number of people i've worked on a wide range of projects and i'm still out there doing it
0: yeah is it busy do you have a lot of work
1: it's it's a bit of a mixed bag i mean at the moment i'm actually have been for the last six months to a year been really quite busy i've got quite a few paintings in and i've also got an ongoing project um in mayfair working for somebody i can't mention oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: well, a very wealthy person and i'm <laughs> in, in a, a very posh house but you
0: know. oh so you're Stop doing at, it like private conservation of their private collection
1: it's not it, it, it's a bit more it, it's a it's a very peculiar thing called stuc pierre stuc pierre is a french invention which is um a kind of plaster that looks like stone and i've got to basically touch it up where the old and the new Pierre meet because they don't match up and I've got to do a sort of faux stone effect paint job right? Um, very carefully over this entire very large space so that's been a, a, a sort of mainstream main, mainstay of a job for a while but on the side I've got a couple of paintings downstairs at the moment which I'm working on and that's been a that's been that's picked up a little bit lately but it's not always not always thick and fast
0: no no so it can be do you you, do you generally work for private individuals or is it can be corporates or
1: it can be either but it's mostly private individuals i i sort of work in the middle part of the market and so it's private owners who have maybe just a few paintings or something and you know only one out of six of them needs something doing to it so it's like you know i get um you know, sometimes I get repeat work off some clients, but they're not big collectors. Mostly, they're mostly people like perhaps you or I, who might have three or four nice pieces of artwork, um, and I'll I'll work on them. That's mostly what I do. Yeah.
0: So, what are the common issues then that you get presented with? What's the reason why people contact you? Because, as you say, I mean, I have artwork, um, and I'm careful with how it's displayed. So, you know, out of sunlight and all of that. But I wonder what would motivate and trigger someone to go, I need to contact an art conservator.
1: Mostly it's either one of two main things. It's either damage, you know, so paintings with holes in, I work on them, or it's age, which is just it's an accumulated bunch of dirt, or it's become very fragile, or it's, um, it's starting to look, you know, too shabby to be able to see the thing properly. And so it's either that. Goes two main areas, um, and then sometimes people spend quite a long time finding a conservator because you know if you've got a painting with some problems, you know it, it can probably wait a year. It can probably wait two. You don't have to rush into it. You could ask several different people their opinion, all that sort of thing. So there's a certain amount of leading time that goes on with all these things, um, and um, yeah, I mean I, I treated a painting just the other year. It had been stored in somebody's loft and it had got damp and that sort of thing they, they you know it was a family heirloom they didn't realize it was a damp loft and so i had to deal with mold and all sorts of bits and pieces um so you get you know just kind of slightly neglect neglectful stuff sometimes a little bit of that but you know that's the that sort of things so yeah
0: yes so damage is quite obvious how. yeah yeah, you know, that happens. It, it, you know, life happens, doesn't it? Life happens. Yeah. You can't
1: put some of it. No.
0: No, some of it is just you know, and accidents happen. That's why they're called accidents, isn't it? But the 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 age thing, I'm I'm interested in that. So, what happens to a a painting? Do you generally find over a period of time, and is there a period in art art history when this is more prevalent?
1: Um. Okay. To be quite sort of basic. I think that there's two things that happen with paintings. One is they get dirty with dirt. It used to be nicotine. It could have been soot from fires. Um, and then there's the actual aging of a varnish layer. There's often a varnish layer and they tend to be natural resin materials and go yellowy brown after a while. and need to be replaced. So you've got grayish dirt layers and you've got yellowy brown varnish layers. And that's, that's I mean, that's too oversimplified, but that's two of the main things you get um and um so <clears throat> there's not really a period in which those things don't happen They're, all these objects live in the same time as what the rest of us do and so they can go through all kinds of things um yeah from, nicotine
0: nicotine was a massive one
1: for you know quite a few years wasn't it yeah nicotine's been i mean I, you know i've worked on historic interiors i was at the egyptian embassy um doing something a few years back now and they had a ceiling which was covered in brown nicotine because it had been a place where, you know, the the ambassadors had been hosting big parties with loads of cigar smokers for years on end. So it was like taking off brown gravy. (laughs) Quite quite alarming. Um, Yes, because
0: Egyptians do, and also Egyptians smoke those cigarettes without the filters, don't they? That's a kind of cultural thing.
1: I couldn't tell you now, but I mean, obviously the period Mm. of nicotine damage is probably closing down now because mm-hmm. you can't smoke hardly in in any indoor situation yeah. and you know people are generally going off smoking more broadly so yeah that's probably going to pass uh, likewise the such thing's going to pass because we don't have coal fires and stuff like that mm-hmm. anymore We haven't had that for a while but you'll still get um you still get a bit of fading to light sometimes with some things there are certain uh pigments you find out not that really lasts very well especially under ultraviolet light. um so get a bit of fading things like that but you know most people you, are careful with their painting yeah
0: though. would you therefore recommend that because there's a lot of conservation glass out there now isn't there i know this would yeah. do you out of a job but is that a good thing do you think
1: if you can get a glass that's got a uv inhibitor in it yeah that's that's probably a good thing
0: mm. and we
1: resist putting glass over oils sometimes you see if you look at if you look at a major gallery or museum you'll you'll see glazed oils and mm. um, that's not a uh that's not that unusual actually but um they traditionally they weren't glazed i mean a lot lots of modern paintings in particular aren't, uh, don't get glazed um or, or even framed sometimes so um They have to just exist where they are.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Well, that's often the way when people buy things. I find this when people come and um, if they buy things at exhibition, 99 percent of the time all the work we offer is framed. But in this digital age where people are buying online, we're having to offer obviously unframed and unglazed because it's too too dangerous to ship if it's um, got glazing and it's too heavy if it's got a frame on it and so there's a lot more people um, receiving artwork in its raw state and then being faced with what do I do with this now and if you're not used to the conventions of you know the art world um, Mm -hmm. and you're unaware that conventionally you wouldn't put um, glass over an oil but you would um, and you would use a particular type of glass, you are very reliant on your framer. I know during Art360, I've actually got um, an interview coming up with Bev Saunders from Edge Framing, and we talk quite a lot about that. We talk quite a lot about um, the appropriateness of using glass and framing properly and sealing the packet. So, um, sorry, I don't know whether you can hear that noise. Hopefully not. There's a like a pinging going on. Um, it's like a doorbell I don't know where it's coming
1: from it's on. just emails turning up a car oh
0: is it it's <laughs> <laughs> like a doorbell going um, do I became aware of art conservation because a friend of mine had inherited some, some paintings and she asked me um, where to go to get them conserved and then she asked me what the next question she asked me which I thought was really interesting because I was like well I don't know at that point I didn't have found you Andy but because this was a couple of years ago but she asked me how much she should be paying for a basic clean so she'd inherited some artwork and it was covered in nicotine as you described been in a house where they've been smoking and it was covered they were beautiful they were Glasgow boys um, paintings and um, they were beautiful but you couldn't get the beauty of them because they were covered in nicotine is there a kind of like standard price for this kind of work in the like if it's a one meter two meter three meter kind of bracket
1: um that's a difficult one to answer the the main way you will encounter pricing is as an hourly rate right. um that's the most it's not done by the square foot usually it's done by an hourly, by rate. hourly. and that people do have various prices you can look a whole bunch of people up and find something um, I suppose, on average, we're less than dentists. <laughs> so, but, you know, and, and possibly less than the first hour of a plumber, I would say. Um, but, yeah, we're we're not that expensive for what we do. And the thing is, you know, every painting is different and has usually got slightly different problems than the last one you looked at. So you can't, it's difficult to standardise a price. I mean, I, I do give prices based on, photographs but i much prefer to see the thing in in the real in the real flesh so to speak before i, I think
0: cook. that's the thing isn't it? is this people need to have a ballpark of what you're kind of talking about otherwise they don't know whether they're being ripped off and that's always a concern isn't it
1: well it's the same concern as you have with garage mechanics isn't it exactly oh they're going to charge me 50 pound more than it is or you yeah. something mm. but you know i mean yeah. you just develop a a habit of not <laughs> doing that and you, you yeah, yeah. And, and so on and that's all right um
0: exactly I, so coming to someone like you you get the reputation so you have all of that reputation behind yeah. you so they'll be confident they're paying the right price for it yeah
1: yeah um yeah when we're, we're, we're in general given that we are professionals usually with several years of college we're not that dear
0: really. no i would ratify that i think i said to her if um for this cleaning of this painting that she showed me a picture of i said i should think you would be because it wasn't it was just dirty i said i think you'd be paying like between 150 and 200 pounds for that which i said i thought was incredibly reasonable if she got it for that and that's what she that's what they quoted her so she was confident
1: yeah so she had an idea beforehand yeah Yeah, yeah the thing is it's um when you're asking somebody to clean a painting and you think, oh, it's just a little bit of this and that, bit of mm. you've got to remember it that they do go wrong.
0: Mm.
1: And if you don't really know what you're doing, they can go wrong. And I would say that I have had a few pieces where either somebody's asked a non-professional to clean it or something, and it's come back and there's like, you know, bits missing and things which shouldn't really have happened because somebody was trying to save a few pounds and didn't want to go to the you know sort of bona fide person
0: is um, there an industry broad body like you know yeah like you, you mentioned plumbers and you'd go to checker trade <laughs> is there right. yes. art conference on consumers checker trade <laughs> there's
1: a there's a i mean it's a it's been a difficult um uh, development of the whole business as a, as a as a sort of a an industry if you like as tiny as an industry but um, so people used to develop uh, individual reputations in the past. There is a professional body called ICON, the Institute of Conservation, and you can join that if you want to. And to be fair, there are other bodies that you can join, like the Association of British Picture Conservatory Restorers, which I think I might join soon because I'm feeling like I need a bit of, uh, somebody to talk to. Um,
0: yeah.
1: But they don't. They're not like guarantors. It's not. Um, you're better off just trading on your own on your own past, really
0: yes and other people as we always say ask someone you know you
1: know
0: would you recommend this person
1: word of mouth recommendation is Mm. probably the single best thing i mean i've got a website i advertise a little bit i suppose yes
0: at the bottom here so if you want to go to andy's oh, yeah. website it's at the bottom of the screen here and you can click on it and you can see his credentials and you know you can be assured that i had a good look around and made sure that andy's and, andy's the real deal <laughs> we've had a few chats haven't we Andy? so um yeah um yeah there's oh, yeah there's so
1: people the and then you know and the websites you'll see will vary i mean i do know example one very experienced conservative much probably about 20 years my senior who works out of west london and he's got a website and it's just like one painting on the front of it and and it's just like this is me (laughs) yeah
0: exactly (laughs) and
1: and that's all he does mine's more elaborate and it's got a bunch of text and all sorts um but you know you probably find that you get word of mouth recommendation more than a type yeah
0: So you mentioned you've done interiors and you're working on an interior project now. Can you talk us through um, a project that you've done recently, you know, kind of how it came about and then how you got into it and and the issues that you found?
1: Um, Just recently, I worked on a North London manor house ceiling, which had got some repairs to a big plaster plaque. And we're talking about a sort of heraldic uh, stuff which was foliate stuff and some gilded bits and all this, and it had been repaired. The plaster had been repaired because there'd been some damage, and I got called in to paint it up to match it all in. So that was interesting. Um, took me about four days to do it, it was quite good, quite satisfying job. <clears throat> I'll probably put those photos on my internet at some point. Um, <clears throat> but there you go, it just came about because somebody rang me because they thought, Well, who's who's a painting restorer? sometimes it just comes out of the blue like that
0: yeah um, it's a painted ceiling
1: yes it needed to be matched in i mean i do what you call color matching so I, I, I i'm always matching colors up um, to various old things and stuff um so that's what i did yes mm,
0: that sounds fascinating so a painting restorer is quite a broad thing because it's not just you know i'm visualizing a painting in a frame you know an oil yeah. painting but actually they're on ceilings they're on walls they're like murals aren't they
1: Yeah, I've I've got a somewhat broader background than a number of other people who would call themselves painting restorers who do just deal with things in frames and stuff. Um, I've got some wall paintings experience. And for those of you who don't know why we say wall paintings, it's essentially murals, but really old artistic ones. I worked on 15th century wall painting issues. I've done historic decorative interiors, which is another category, which means, you know, the stenciling stuff, the gilding stuff. I've, I've um, distressed furniture for people who like that shabby chic thing. Um, I
0: distress furniture.
1: I, <laughs> I, I everyone I meet, I think. An amount of gilding and, and I, you know, so I've, I've got a, a sort of a slightly broader background on, on which to call mm. to um, do things. I do know people who just do nothing but painting, so mm.
0: So what should? You know, bring it back down to artists. What should they be thinking of, and what should they do in order to ensure that their artwork doesn't ha- end up in the hands of someone like you? And, you know, obviously they can't allow for the damage, but you know, someone puts a hole.
1: No, accidental damage you can't fathom. But,
0: but apart from that,
1: <laughs> make your artwork well in the first place. And I mean, just recently I had a painting in, and you know, it was a really fine canvas, very very small, sort of portrait leaning and they hadn't put a ground on it they hadn't put a primer or a ground on it so it's just paint direct onto the canvas the canvas is therefore becoming very brittle it's getting a bit more acidic than it should have done and so it's it's um it's kind of really not very well made works in in the beginning um other than that don't don't hang a painting above a radiator don't hang a painting in direct sunlight um don't put it in a draft. You want to avoid fluctuations in relative humidity and temperature, mm. um, and that sort of thing. And then your canvas won't sort of stretch and become embrittled and baggy or whatever. Um,
0: so it like, is that for the artist,
1: keeping rules is, is what it, you know you do. What you what you need to do, but yeah. make everything well in the first place. It's, yeah. It's
0: so buy the best substrate you can, the best canvas. Yeah. I mean, there the are
1: artists I'm quite well aware who want to make their stuff so that they don't care if it falls apart. There's a sort of this sort of conceptual art thing that went on where they, you know, they paint things on the thinnest paper and they paint it with the wrong paints. I mean, it was a famously, I mean, a very large, uh, very well-known painter called Anselm Kiefer. I don't know if you've
0: come across. Yeah. Anselm yeah, Kiefer. Yeah. Big,
1: big, big painting in the take. I think he painted it with something like, um, some kind of tar or something. And it's like, it's just impossible to conserve it because it's you, you can't you can't get anything behind it. It's just never going to dry properly. It's just uh,
0: that was part of the thing, wasn't it? As you said, of, of it. yeah, that was part of it. it. I remember going to that RA um, show and yeah. the smell of paint was overwhelming, and it was stood out from the canvas significantly and cracking
1: and cracking. It, it will never, yeah. you know. Bitumen tar that sort of stuff, it will never mm. actually dry. Linseed oil paint does dry to a film, see, that's why they use it. Mm. Um, but the thing is, the intention of the artist, which is something we always have to bear in mind, is if he wants it to be made out of that stuff, then he's got to figure with the fact that it's going to rot slowly. Mm. I mean, and we're all in conservation, we're in the business of stopping things falling apart and aging until they drop. We're trying to keep them together and visible. Uh, and in good shape as far as, as long as we can, so we're prolonging uh, their life. I mean, that's the whole point. Um, but some things are not made with that in mind. And it's whole thing. Mm.
0: No, as you say, it's intentional, isn't it? And I love that. Yeah, you're, you're there to stop the rot.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm here to mend broken art.
0: <laughs> and it's really important, as I said just now, to buy the best, if, you're, if your intention is for it to have longevity, it's... Wherever you start, like I was saying earlier about, you know, we started with no audience, but we still paid for the best platform we could afford. And that stood us in good stead now because we're now on the best broadcasting platform and we haven't had to move across from Zoom or any of these others. Um, we, we went all in and committed to ourselves that we were going to do it professionally. And that's the thing with artists that, you know, do it intentionally, consciously make those decisions buy the best you can and prepare it well put do the primer do the gesso do the uh, put the ground down and then you will your work will not arrive in andy's studio
1: yes i'm doing yourself out of work yeah
0: (laughs) yeah you're doing yourself out of work so that's works that's painted works on canvas but you alluded to works on paper then
1: i did allude to works on paper and just for those of you who are interested in conservation um, conservation splits up into several disciplines so I work on paintings which includes canvas wooden panel metal panel sometimes I'll do things on plaster that technically comes into wall paintings I suppose but there's a tiny different set sort of field for works on paper so prints drawings watercolors all that get a paper conservator to do them that's the chemistry of how to deal with you know falling apart paper is different and also you, you've got to be very careful with water, obviously, and stuff like that. So, and then you know, there's other people who specialize in musical instruments, old grandfather clocks, you name it, there's somebody out there. There's a leather conservation center for anything that's old, hard leather. Mm. I've seen thing. them
0: bring some of that leather back to life. It's incredible.
1: Yes, it is. It's quite amazing, because it turns into something really hard and biscuity, and then you can, you can rejuvenate it. If you can. Mm. So there's, there's people who specialize in all kinds of things. Um, mm. Paintings is quite a few of us because there's quite a few paintings out there compared to, there's some people that will conserve an old steamroller somewhere, you know, I mean, things, things like that do occur. You know. mm, mm.
0: And I, I know with paper often it's it's the foxing and such like because of the acid, isn't it? And then being stored, as you say, in damp. And such like so artists who do work who do paint onto paper need to be aware of that when they're storing work in their own studios that you can you can embed some damage in it before it even leaves you if you don't store it correctly yeah. um and keep airflow and everything
1: yeah keep it warm and dry and i think uh, like me
0: keep me warm and dry and i'm happy.
1: And <laughs> uh, i think people use interleaves between if they're going to have a like a plan chest um and they're going to store several sort of watercolors in there. They have an interleaf um, between each one and stuff like that. So yeah. that you don't have one bit sticking to another. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I've worked on a couple of things just lately where people have rolled up something, just rolling things up to post them is becoming a bit of a thing. Uh, and then the front has stuck to the back because they didn't have any interleaf, no no release agent, no nothing in there. So they, you know, so all of a sudden you've got to unroll it and all of a sudden bits peel off. And it's like, oh, God, why did you do it like this? Yeah. I you know I've worked on a few things. There's a couple of companies out there that uh, import copies from, I think it's China or Russia or both. And they are all they come rolled up in tubes and then they have to get uh, put on stretchers and framed up and everything when they get here. So mm. because they don't want to make packing crates.
0: Yes, it's Which, ex- yeah. as we said, it's expensive, isn't it? And it's not good for the environment. So we have to think about it environmentally. it's not good for the environment to have all that waste but there are some great companies out there that you can ship properly with Um, mailboxes is one that i've used and um, and i think um, people like ups will actually collect your artwork in stiffy bags and um they don't insist on you having it in um, crates you can just pay extra and it can be transported in a bag that you can that can live its life in until you decide to hang it on the wall So, um, yeah, it's always worth um, doing a good look around about that stuff, especially now, as I say, now that everything's being, well, we had no choice, a lot of stuff been being, be, being bought online and it's being bought from all over the world. And we're going to do a session on this thing called NFTs, which is digital art. Have you heard of these?
1: I've heard of digital art, but I don't know what NFTs.
0: NFTs, it's a thing. It's those I- Americans again. What can I say?
1: Not for something?
0: Non-fungible tokens, which means, I know, (laughs) it's it's quite a thing. Non-fungible tokens, which is original digital art. So non-fungible means it's original. And Elon Musk has been big in this market, making this digital artwork um, and buying it. And you can only buy it with Bitcoin, which I have to say, 10 years ago, or Ethereum, which is another kind of virtual currency. 10 years ago, when someone mentioned Bitcoin, I was like, oh, don't do that, it's a con. <laughs> and now, of course, they're all absolutely made a fortune, haven't they? So there you are. Don't listen to me. Don't take financial advice from me.
1: <laughs> I think the Bitcoin people occasionally lose a fortune or two. Do well. they?
0: Oh, good. It makes uh, me feel it's better.
1: Not, it's not a complete hill upwards, I don't think.
0: <laughs> I feel better about that. But oh, yeah, yeah the, digital, the digital world in the last year has meant that we're buying stuff. Yes, an NFT sold at Christie's last week. It was by Beeple's. And it was, he's been doing this thing called 500 days. And I think it went for, I'm prepared to be corrected because obviously this is off the back of my brain, $69 million.
1: Ouch.
0: Ouch. And prior to that, he'd been selling them point, and, and, and Bitcoin has funny um, currency. So he's he was selling them for point zero one which is about the equivalent of 1700 quid apparently and then all of a sudden it went into Christie's and he sold out for 69 million he was jumping around the room and i think um elon musk did something again that was um also in that kind of field but it's the thing it it's a thing the trend forecasters are now saying yep. this is a thing and you'll be watching you'll be having art on screens in big you know that'll be big installations in the future so but I don't think that that, that will ever um, replace. It'll just become like everything else, blended. So everyone will have opportunity to, you know, artists such as Juliet who's just commented there, who works within digital art on photography, NFTs are a massive opportunity for someone who's working in that area. But someone who does painting can do NFTs, but they can do painting as well. And you can turn your painting into an NFT, NFT or keep the painting
1: i'm just thinking aloud as it it sounds very i mean i know it's electronic but Mm. it's very much like selling prints isn't it
0: um no because um well it is original prints it's in the concept of original prints um as opposed to a gicle or a photocopy because there are lots of laws around it and there's platforms anyway it's an an entire minefield I'm not going to go into it here now but I am going to do a series of talks from with this trend forecaster in May probably um on NFTs if anyone's interested because I I will be the idiot in the room don't worry I'll be the idiot in the room asking the stupid questions and you can all laugh in the background you know that child in class who always asks the please miss (laughs) I don't understand that'll be me. So everyone can listen, and then you can all be geniuses about it. And you don't have to admit that we didn't know what they were talking about. So yeah, I'm going to do that. But back to what we're talking about today. Um, That was just a sideline, because it became apparent that it was necessary to say. Um, We've got some questions. So we've got the first one is from Bev, and that's in the sidebar and bev is a framer and she says what would what would your advice be to picture framers framing acrylic or oil paintings on canvas
1: um um, frame them appropriately to what they are so obviously sometimes box frames sometimes you have frames with a slip on the front um i don't know it's, it's, it's a very broad question that um, is a
0: broad question, but yeah, I think exactly. it's, are there, is there anything particular that you always find that comes in and you think that's the frame has done that yeah. to create the damage? There
1: is a, there is a small trigger, um, which I don't know if you've come across, if you know, if you've got a frame and you know, just underneath the edge, which is covering over the edge of the painting, <clears throat> that obviously touches the paint that touches the artwork directly. Mm-hmm. You can buy from, I think, haberdashers a very thin strip of uh, i think it's a kind of nylon it's almost like nylon velvet and you can put a strip of that underneath the slip and then you you're not then it's just cushioned off the surface of the painting that's a nice little trick Conservators do that sort of thing
0: oh there you go bev so yeah because as you say i was gonna say when they come into your studio you know mostly they're gonna have frames on aren't they and you're gonna see a damage and is that something that you often see it's the the bit of the painting that's
1: sitting underneath the rebate. Well, it's a bit underneath the rebate, there's two things that happen. One is if it's a wet, wetish painting, it's not dried enough, then you can have a bit stuck to the rebate, and then you have to replace that bit. <clears throat> the other thing that happens is the rebate of the frame, just for information, because it cuts out the light on that very last centimeter or so, mm-hmm. um, the paint will age differently. Particularly oil paint will age differently and slightly, and because of the Absence of daylight—it seems like it goes darker most most often than the rest of the painting. So that's something yes. that you need to watch. So I don't have too much rebate if you can help it.
0: So that's the tips, Bev. Minimise the rebate on yeah. an oil painting.
1: Yeah, and let them dry. Make sure they're dry.
0: Please. Make sure they're dry. Oh my goodness, that's a classic one for oil painting, isn't it? It's like I remember back in the day when I run an art gallery, um, like 15 years ago or whatever, and um, I would be working with artists, and they'd arrive with the artwork in their car, and they'd go, "Oh yeah, it's still a bit. It's still a bit wet." I'm yeah, like, "Yeah, yeah. Why have you?" I can't do anything with that you know take it back and <laughs> wait till it's dry <laughs> I don't bring that artwork into my into my gallery wet <laughs> just classic I was learning as well then so I was didn't realize this was actually quite a common thing
1: yeah you no. Know, if people are knocking out paintings they think they've got a ready market then they it, it do trip themselves up a little bit
0: yeah I, mean, I remember
1: years ago first coming across I can't remember where I read it first of all it was um one of the handbooks i've I kind of got um an oil painting you should leave it for at least six months to a year before you varnish it have you heard that one yeah. that's that you hit people do repeat that one it's yeah. but obviously that's a rule of thumb because you know it depends how thick your paint is and everything um uh, but um but that's a, that's a thing
0: um that's why they have the varnish that's why they had that thing called the varnishing day at the ra isn't it because people I, would still their paintings would still be drying right up to the minute of them hanging on the wall in the RA so then they'd give the opportunity to come and varnish them.
1: Varnish later on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that that thing that you put under the rebate. Tell us that again. It's a nylon. It's
1: it's, well, it's a a synthetic. It it looks like ribbon. It comes on a roll. It's usually black and it's kind of like velvet texture to it. So it's kind of soft padding. Mm. and it's just nice to just keep the rebate off your frame and it also just sets the painting just back about a million and a half it's quite like it's quite a neat oh,
0: do you have a special supplier for
1: that i can't remember where i last bought some i'm not sure if i've got any left now but it was <laughs> so i don't know if it's used in glasses or something like that. yeah yeah <clears throat> haberdashers.
0: so somewhere like john lewis probably would have
1: that. yeah probably there yeah
0: i would think so so let's uh, hopefully that helps bev any specific question pop it in the ask a question box because i think that's what you were asking is you know what you see that comes in that could be prevented by the framer um, oh, so mm-hmm. let's see what else uh, we've got on here so vincent your love vincent vincent is a interior architect and he probably creates a lot of the plaster work that you then years later go back and um have to repair so is it a good idea to varnish oil paintings when it often is what causes the most damage to the painting over time? If artists are to varnish their work would you recommend a restoration varnish is best to use? Um,
1: you need to use a varnish which you can reverse in the future when I say reverse get it off without damaging the paint so um, traditionally something like a dam is very good. Now the thing with Damar is after about a hundred years, it will go a bit yellowy goldy, but it's dead easy to get it off compared to other resins, which you can get. Um, The ones that um, come out of Winsor and Newton and stuff these days, um, some of them say that they're reversible and some of them say they have UV filters in. They're probably okay, but I I, I do know my natural resins better than some of the more modern synthetics. Um,
0: So natural, natural resin. Try,
1: try Damar, it's very pleasing. It mm. goes on very thin, it's very watery, good saturator. Yeah.
0: Mm. There you are, another top, tip. top oh, tip. We're getting all the top tips now. We've got the ribbon, I'll go and try and find that. And then we've got Damar, the um, restorer's preference for. Um,
1: well, know. to be honest with you, restorers use, for retouching, we use modern synthetic resins because they don't discolour over time. Mm. That's generally the thing. And there are also varnishes you can, varnishes you can get which have next to no discoloration <clears throat> but I was thinking for ease of use if people don't want to get into those rather more technical materials that a damar is quite a good choice uh, for general mm,
0: mm. thank you do you work on a- acrylic paintings as well as oil
1: uh, yes I do or I have done um, I did a, my one of my main projects at college was to work on a large acrylic painting by a gentleman called Sean Scully Mm. you would probably come across him, as a bit mm. of an 80s painter, I think. Yeah, but um, very famous, and uh, yes, that was a particular thing. And I'm also acquainted with a couple of the people that worked on a big project on acrylic paintings and how to clean them, uh, which was hosted by the Tate Gallery um, a few years back. And so <clears throat> it, it is a whole different area, but I have to say one thing about acrylics is there's lots of different types and some of them they vary in quality quite a bit and some of the actual constituents aren't quite the same as each other so if you're making a general comment about acrylics um what can i say if they get a bit warm they get a bit tacky and if they get a bit cold they get a bit brittle that's two things you need to watch so try to keep your temperature sort of together because when they get tacky all that happens is it's any dust falls on them it starts getting imbibed into the paint there, and that's absolutely next to no chance of getting that off. So
0: keep them oh, that's interesting.
1: Keep within a reasonable temperature range, you know, normal household temperature range mm. should be all right. But yeah. You know.
0: mm. Yeah. That's interesting. So yeah, that the paint is affected even before you've even put it on the the, the surface, whatever the substrate is that you're using, the, the paint is already can already be building in a problem if you don't keep your temperature.
1: I'm talking about a a finished painting. Yeah. The surface can almost like, if fluff fell on it and it couldn't be dusted off, then it would stay there and make a grey coating
0: Mm. over a
1: period of time. That's if it stays a bit too warm. Mm. This goes back to the um, don't put paintings above radiators story. Yeah. Yeah,
0: the classic, classic don't put, yeah. Um, your, or in direct sunlight, um, or opposite, direct sunlight. opposite a, a set of windows that are south-facing, for instance, is a very bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the youngest painting that you've worked on?
1: I worked on a, a, a actually quite a good modern painting. It was a 21st century painting, I think it was about 2010. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, that's not the most modern one. It was the most proper modern one, but I've worked on a couple that were just made last year that were just badly treated and it was a really poor, the technique was poor, the varnish wasn't very good and so it started to peel off and I had to kind of just kind of try to find a way of touching it in but it was, um, that was just like last year or something.
0: Yeah so it's happening, it's happening every day so if you don't prepare and as we say buy the the best you can afford and prepare your um, canvases or Whatever medium properly, and then you don't look after your paints, and you don't, and then don't hang it in a good place. It's going to deteriorate yeah. pretty quickly, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, if you like these things, treat them well.
0: Yeah,
1: make them make them well in the first place. It's not, you know, it's, yeah. it's that, the thing is, it's I'm referring to, I suppose, the kind of craft skills that you might need to actually make works of art mm-hmm. that will stand together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most people that I remember from art college at my time weren't necessarily all that interested in that. They were interested, oh, it's all about ideas. It's all about my emotional thing or my theoretical thing. And so they weren't that bothered about whether their stuff was well made, really. so
0: I think most people these days not are. They were about. Yeah, I think the artists that um, we interact with are. Yeah. And yeah. I think our collectors are. And it's respectful yeah. to your collectors because your collectors have taken time to earn that money. To then part with it to give yeah. it to you for your artwork, that oh, you yeah. do the best job you can mm. in the whole chain, and that's why um, knowledge is power, isn't it? So if we know and we're aware and we make a conscious decision not to do that, then you have to communicate that yeah. down the chain. A bit like the Banksy that shredded, you know, that was an intention. You knew what you were getting. You know what you're getting with Banksy. He yeah. normally does stuff on the side of buildings that you yeah. know is is ephemeral. That's not permanent so you know what you're getting as long as you know what you're getting it's okay then the value and the trade is okay it's when you don't know what you're getting that's where the problem lies so yeah, yeah do will, the best you can
1: it will upset collectors if you if you have things that rot <laughs>
0: yeah <it> does upset <laughs> yeah. me very much i'd be very unhappy if i've you know saved up and, and got this beautiful Painting that I wanted for a long time, mm. and then within six months I see the varnish peeling off or the paint cracking. I'd be very unhappy mm. um, about it. So, we, I think we've got one last question on here. Oh uh, yeah, how long do you recommend oil paintings dry before framing?
1: Um, a traditionally made oil painting. I would well, it's the same as the varnishing question. I think really. Probably about six months, you just don't want them wet. It's entirely dependent on how thick the paint is, though. I mean, I can think of really thin oil paintings and ones which are basically plastered like butter. um, Mm -hmm. They they won't, I mean, the middle of those bits of paint is going to take a long, long time to dry, like several years, you know.
0: Uh, Yeah.
1: That's, but that's, you know
0: it is it's inter- it's dependent on the piece isn't it so if you've done a, a sensible piece and it's you know reasonably made within the
1: usual a, thickness of paint
0: the it usual it's,
1: well yes exactly you can't say it can you the yeah. what's the usual the whole point is it's art and it's all a bit different isn't it, so
0: yeah i um so. chris has just said in the cyber she heard that some of vincent van gogh's paintings are still wet now well,
1: and I've, I've, sorry, first of all that sentence is a bit difficult to believe but <laughs> If you've seen the thickness of some of that paint, then the middle bit of it, the bit right in the middle of the big heavy brush stroke, that might still not be quite dry. Um, But if you're using linseed oil paints in the uh, traditional way, it it will form a film and it will form linoxin on the top and it will dry and it will oxidise and it will be perfectly good leathery hard stuff, you know. Uh, Not a long time.
0: Yeah, as you say, about six months. Something like that yeah that's been brilliant absolutely brilliant i've learned so much andy oh hang on someone's popped in a quick question there without us looking look at that so oh it depends on the mixing of the medium with the yeah whether you use linseed or walnut oil um, etc yes absolutely um as as andy said it is about the components the component parts and how you put them together Uh, but being aware and consciously making these decisions and communicating that on to your collectors if you've made decisions that might have an impact negatively on the artwork that you're creating and from a framers point of view um yeah uh, being aware of what comes in is really useful because then you can do certain things to negate that like you've you know you've suggested which is great been brilliant absolutely brilliant fascinating i've learned things i didn't even i wasn't even aware of
1: didn't even know you didn't know them
0: didn't even know i didn't know that's that is epistemology isn't it just <laughs> i didn't know i didn't know the power of knowledge yeah the, the, the what is that epistemology is the um
1: i think it's the theory of knowledge theory of
0: knowledge yeah the theory of knowledge i was trying to come up with the right words there yeah, yeah there's a man who's done a masters that was the first thing that anyone ever said to me when I started doing a master's. They said, Do you know what epistemology means? And I was like, oh and my god. Sorry?
1: So I haven't touched a drop.
0: <laughs> I know, we did really well. I, I was really naughty because <clears throat> when I did my masters, Charlie was a little boy, a little tiny, and I taught him that word. <laughs> I said, if anyone, you know, starts giving you trouble, just tell them just say, Do you know what epistemology is? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah <laughs> kept him safe kept him safe for many years Thanks. um yes brilliant andy thank you so much thank you so much for being my final guest of series three hey,
1: it's been my pleasure i hope i haven't um put my foot in it with anyone you,
0: you never you can't put your foot in it you've just spoken your truth and that's brilliant and we've learned so much from you um and if anyone wants to learn more then you, they can go to your website which is, as i say is at the bottom of um the screen here um or they can contact Andy it's arh conservation a r what's the, what's the r stand for richard richard andrew richard hurst arh conservation now you now you've we've outed you as a richard no, so, um,
1: now you've got me. now you've got me. <laughs>
0: I've added you as a richard but no that's really fascinating thank you so much but do contact andy um if you've got any specific questions bear with you, i i would suggest you contact andy directly um, if you've got any more specific questions because i know andy's very happy to answer them and he's very approachable and we've really enjoyed having you on here in your suit in your jacket see i felt very honored that andy wore his jacket i was like that's great he's like that's really respectful and that's old school and i really like it I'm still wearing my Victoria Beckham sweatshirt with her son's name across the chest, which is slightly awkward. But I was chilly today. What can I say? (laughs) Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. This is now available on Catch Up. Um, Did we have any questions, Sophie, from um, Facebook? You haven't popped anything in here, so I'm assuming everyone on Facebook hasn't had any questions. Sophie has been watching Facebook from the park in (laughs) Bedgebury. (laughs) <laughs> with her children so uh, you said we up here we push we we make sure that we do a good job so we we nothing stops us um but yeah any questions pop them on the facebook page i'm happy to forward them on to andy as well and i'll do a little blog post about this because i think it'd be interesting to do a blog post and i'll send it to you andy and you can add on anything else that you remember but cool. yeah other than that it's going to be on the youtube channel that you can watch anytime um it'll be on our um website in Chris does that. So maybe tomorrow I'll give you a bit, of, I'll cut you a bit of slack, Chris, and um, you can put that up tomorrow and the um, podcast to be da- available to download tomorrow as well. So no, brilliant. Thank you so much, Andy. Thank you, everyone. I will see anyone who's joining me tonight for the Sensor Pro workshop. Um, that's six o'clock. You've all had the email with the Zoom in. Um, or I'll see you tomorrow for the Facebook Live with Rob Moore. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Andy.